Well, good morning, everybody. Wow, awesome, awesome energy this morning. Great uh, focus in the Word and in prayer time already. So for that, we are very thankful. And uh, glad you're here. Uh, in first service, uh, Zach mentioned, and I haven't checked the weather today, but he said something like the highs only supposed to be like in the low 80s today or something. So he was pretty sure that's a sign maybe that the apocalypse is nigh, low 80s in the middle of summer in Texas, so who knows. Let's be sure we're prayed up, right? That's probably not a bad, uh, probably not a bad idea. Well, if you've got a Bible, please turn to Nehemiah 3. We're going to get there in just a few moments. As you're turning there, I want to make a handful of announcements. First of all, we want to rejoice that our church family continues to grow. You may not realize this, but we're, we're actually averaging between 50 to 100 more people per week than we did this time last year. So God is just sending us gobs and gobs and gobs of new faces. And so we're grateful for that. And of course, this was our first uh, summer to have uh, early service continued through the summer. I think that's probably made an impact as well. But for whatever reason, we're just so thankful that our church family is growing. We want to welcome uh, C.T. and Carol Kelly. Kellys, are y'all here this morning? Somewhere? Oh, in the very back, right back there. Okay. This is the parents of the Saltzman family, so we're glad that all of them are here. So let's welcome uh, the Kellys to our church this morning. They come to us from the Southern Hills Church over in Abilene, Texas. Some of you have some ties there, and so uh, we'll be some good relationship. And then also, I'm not sure if she's here this morning, Miss Marilyn Mars. Marilyn, are you right there this morning? Is also part of our church family, and so we want to welcome Marilyn. Let's welcome her to our family as well. So very, very glad she's here, and uh, she's got uh, Stuart and Sarah and a couple of really precious little grandbabies here, too, so awesome, right back there, so great, great, glad she's here. I'm a little sore this morning, I was over in Franklin, Texas yesterday assisting with tornado cleanup, and I got to tell you, the guns ain't what they used to be, okay, I just got to tell you. A couple of pictures here, some guys, there's uh, Jerry and Rex working like a boss with a still chainsaw or two, and so cutting up a big old oak tree there. And we got a couple more pictures here, some limbs, and I think there's a big old brush pile that we hauled away. And uh, a couple of guys here uh, after, this is post, post tree, if we go to that next slide, Gary, the conquerors there on that uh, big oak tree. Yeah, so uh, we had a, a great day yesterday. About 20 people actually went up. Uh, some uh, of our uh, folks who've been here for a long time, some folks who've just been with us for a couple of months, and we had a really, really great time. Uh, anybody ever done post-storm cleanup? Any of you in the room? You know, the worst part of post-storm cleanup is not the debris, right? It's the smell. It is the smell. And uh, so our folks handled that like a trooper yesterday, and so we're just so very thankful that in this season of being all out, that we were in a position to be able to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And so thank you to those who went. We've got folks back from Cozumel. We've got folks back from Ukraine. Sarah and Kelly are back from their trip to Thailand and Singapore, right? Is that where you guys were? Okay, wonderful. And lots of other folks who've been traveling as well. So we just give God all the praise, all the thanks, and all the honor for that. So the last several weeks, we've been studying the book of Nehemiah. And if you've missed lessons one through three, you can go to our website, and you can pick up 
the, the previous lessons and listen to them there. Um, the, the past three Sundays have been really text heavy. We basically have gone verse by verse through those first two chapters. And, and today we're not going to be quite as text heavy. Today we want to take what we're learning and we want to apply that to our lives. How does the story of Nehemiah intersect our stories? And so that's where we're going today. We know that from our study that Nehemiah was prayerful and we know that he was purposeful and we know that as a result of his ministry, he was action able, he equipped people to be in the restoration business and we'll say more about that as we go along. So we're only going to focus on the first five verses this morning of Nehemiah chapter 3, but these five verses basically serve as a template if you read the first five verses, you in some ways have read the whole chapter because the story of what we see in these first five verses just repeats again and again and again. It's just different names of different people. So, so far we've studied chapters one and two to really get inside the head of Nehemiah. What drives him? We get into his heart what makes him a man of action. Hopefully we're beginning to understand how this, this man of God responds when the walls come crashing down. And so today we're going to personalize this story and we're going to ask a question. And this is the question I want you to process during our time together. What do I do when the walls of my life collapse? So, has anybody in the room ever had a bad day? Can I get an oh yeah? Okay. Any of you ever had a bad week? Is anybody in the middle of a bad year? Because that can happen too, right? We find ourselves in those places where what we have built through God's help, through our family as we've lived our lives, what we have been allowed to, to build and, and put some trust in and some hope in, what do, we, what do we do when that comes crashing down? Well, we're going to see some things in the text this morning that help us understand what one person did that ended up being a ripple effect for other people in the context of a community of faith. And hopefully, prayerfully, begin to gain some traction ourselves when we deal with these, the walls are coming down moments of life. Nehemiah chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. Eliashib, the high priest, and his fellow priests went to work and they rebuilt the sheep gate. They consecrated it. Now, some of your Bibles may say they dedicated it, but I actually think consecrated is a better translation. So we're going to go with that as we read the text this morning. They consecrated the sheep gate, and they set its doors in place, building as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they consecrated, and as far as the Tower of Hananel. The men of Jericho built the adjoining section 
And Zakur, son of Emery, built next to them. And the fish gate was rebuilt by the sons of Hasanaah. Now, when I read that name, I just want to go, Hasanaah, Hasanaah, hey, hey. Okay, never mind. I just, I just need you to know sometimes where my mind goes, okay, when I'm, when I'm in the text. They laid its beams and they put its doors and bolts and bars in place. Merimoth, son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz, repaired the next section, and next to him, Meshulam, son of Berechiah, the son of Meshezabel, made repairs, and next to him, Zadok, son of Baana, also made repairs. The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa, but their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. Interesting dynamic going on there. So there's just a handful of observations that I want to make on this text before we begin reflecting on how this story intersects with our stories. One of the things that jumps out at me as I read this first section is that Nehemiah begins this passage mentioning Eliashib, who is the high priest. And I think there's three reasons why this is important. The first is that Eliashib's buy-in as high priest ensures buy-in from the other priests, and that makes sense, right? He is, because of his position and because of his influence, now as someone who is bought into the work, creating this ripple effect where others say, well, if Eliashib is in, then I am in. The second thing we see, and this is probably even more important, is that those who begin the work consecrate it to the Lord. And we're going to look at number three shortly, but I want to talk a little bit about this idea of consecration. We don't use the word consecrate very often these days. And there are probably a lot of reasons for that, but one of the reasons that seems to make most sense to me is because it almost feels like that nothing is really sacred anymore. I don't know if you agree with me on that or not, but in a lot of ways, I, I just don't think anything is sacred anymore. Let's dig a little deeper. To consecrate something means, if we just look at the definition, it means to make or to declare sacred. It means to set apart or to dedicate to the service of God. To set apart or to dedicate to the service of God. So if we go back and look at the Old Testament, one of the things that we discover is this, that in the Old Testament, animals, for example, could be set apart. So in Exodus chapter 29 and verse 27, consecrate those parts of the ordination ram that belong to Aaron and his sons. And so we see here that animal, or at least parts of an animal, could be set apart, okay, consecrated uh, for the work of the Lord. Times could be set apart. In Leviticus chapter 25 and verse 10, we read, for example, consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. Each of you shall return to your family, to your property, and to your own clan. Objects and people could also be set apart for the work of the Lord. So in Exodus 29, we read, So I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar, and will consecrate Aaron and his sons to serve me as priests. So here's the question. 
Why even consider this? If consecration isn't a word we use all that much, if it's not a concept we're all that familiar with, then what's the point? Well, I think the point is it's a practice that we need to consider individually and collectively as a church. I'm setting my life apart, my time, my money, my energies for the glory of the Lord, for the purposes of the Lord, for the sake of the kingdom. I want to be a consecrated person who's living a consecrated life. And I think we don't just see the consecration happening for the purpose of something being set apart. There's actually this action component that goes along with it here in Nehemiah chapter 3. So there's this third reason that, that we see uh, Eliasha being chosen, I think. And, and if you dig into the Hebrew text, it's really hard to see this just in our English translations. But in the Hebrew text, it says that the high priest literally rose up with his fellow priests and rebuilt the sheep gate. You see, instead of just sitting and playing armchair quarterback, he actually jumps in and he gets involved. He's standing on the promises of God, and he's moving from this state of inaction to a different outcome, a state of action. And why is this important? Because I read this story, I see something here that's very important for us to understand. It's not just the walls of Jerusalem that lay in ruins. I think there's actually some, some hearts, the resolve of hearts is also in ruins. A lot of ways, I just think these people are just a spiritually kind of coasting. They're just emotionally kind of existing. Even though they've, they have their place of worship, the temple has been rebuilt, and even though they're under, for the most part, not a lot of oppression, they're, they're, they're filled with, with shame because their forefathers had forgotten God. If we put it another way, that which was once sacred, consecrated to their forefathers had been cast aside by previous leaders who wanted to keep one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom to the degree that as a result, nothing is sacred anymore. We noticed this last Sunday when we looked at 2 Kings chapter 21. The Lord said through his servants, the prophets, Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these detestable sins. He's done more evil than the Amorites who preceded him, and he led Judah into sin with his idols. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, I'm going to bring such disaster on Jerusalem and Judah that the ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. Have you ever gotten news that makes your ear tingle? ears tingle? I'm not really sure what that means, but it doesn't sound good, right? It doesn't sound good. When nothing is sacred, so we strip away reverence totally we strip away awe of God we just push that over to the side we strip away spirituality we strip away morality basically what we are left with when all of that is gone is just our biology it's basically all that's left and I'm not a rocket scientist, but, but I have seen this typically, generally, 
When we start living into our biology, usually that's when the walls begin to come down. Satan is very, very good at what he does. We all know this, right? Our lives rarely fall apart due to sin overnight. Most of us don't wake up one day and say, you know, I I think I'll become a radical sinner today. Usually what happens is we begin to drift a little bit here and a little bit there. And before we know it, we are living out of our biology. And theology matters very little. And there's something that's even kind of more sad about that, at least sometimes. Sometimes it doesn't even begin with us. Some of us grow up in environments that don't provide a true glimpse of God. Or we're not in position to understand what it means to belong to Jesus Christ. But I don't want you to just take it from me. I want you to hear firsthand this morning from someone who absolutely, positively understands what it's like when the walls come crashing down. And so I want to introduce you to my friend and to my brother, Josh. Josh, would you come on up here with me, please? So Josh and I met last October for the first time. He was uh, sitting up there in the balcony, and during communion one Sunday morning, I uh, just tapped him on the shoulder, and I said, hey, I don't think I've met you. And uh, I I almost gave him a heart attack because I tapped him on, you know, just tapped him, and then I was like, woo, right there. So that was kind of scary. So I learned a very valuable lesson about personal space when I'm meeting someone for the first time. Um, but uh, Josh and I struck up a conversation and just absolutely have built uh, a, a friendship that I truly uh, am, am blessed by. Uh, some of you may remember uh, Josh was baptized this past December here at our church and uh, really decided it was time to, to fully give his life over to the Lord and some incredible things have happened as a result of that. But Josh, I think it's safe to say you are familiar when the walls come crashing down, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, so how, uh, if you're okay, I'd like for you maybe just to kind of share, share your, your story with the, the church this morning. Yeah. Um, the funny thing about his is before I met Greg and before I got baptized, I was meeting with Dustin a few times. Uh, we went to Babes. And then when he left uh, the Sunday I met Greg, I was in my room getting dressed for church and I was like I should really meet one of the other deacons here and um, continue what Dustin and I were doing and it was just out loud thinking and then lo and behold he taps me on my shoulder and we have gone beyond just friendship I mean I have confided in you you've confided in me I mean you have at certain points through this you know almost year journey, uh, you've held me up a lot. And there's other people at this church that have really done a lot in my life. So, um, and while we were praying, um, you said the word redemption. And there's this really great song, and I'm not sure if it's by Passion or 
Bethesda music or Hillsong, but it's the story of redemption lives in all of us through him. And this is my story of redemption through um, what he's done for me, through this church, through work, through people I've met through work that introduced me to this church. But when we were talking about it, we kind of decided to break this up into two sections. Um, before I met Greg and after I met Greg. And um, starting off as a kid, uh, my dad split real early. And uh, my mom, you know, she did her job. She put a roof over my head, clothes on my back, food on the table, but she never wanted me. And I'm not telling you this for sympathy. It's, it's just my story. I grew up in a very, very physically and uh, mental abusive home. Um, I knew that my mom didn't want me. I knew that my dad didn't want me. Um, the only real saving grace as a kid for me, because um, most of the time I spent alone, locked up in the house, didn't really go anywhere. I was just by myself. So even now as an adult, because of that, I find just more joy being by myself than I do with other people. And that's just how I was raised. But my grandparents were there. And my nana and my grandfather taught me a lot of valuable things. And if it wasn't for them basically really raising me and showing me what love is, I probably would be a completely different person than I am. But, um, you know, 18 years of physical abuse. Um, there's one memory where we started up in the upstairs. She was mad and it just started. I mean, just pounding on me and so I ran down the stairs and to escape I had to run into the bathroom downstairs and thank, thank God I'm like long and lanky because I had to put my back against the wall and my feet to the door and hold the door while she was trying to break it in and then I stayed in the bathroom for a couple hours and then I came out and she was sitting in this chair that was directly in front of the bathroom door and she spit in my face and told me she never wanted me and told me to go to bed. And so that's how I grew up. So after about 18 years, I said I had enough. So I ran away. And um, I ran into some people that introduced me to a new world that I didn't know. And it was the drug world. And everything, there was new drugs coming out. I tried ice when it first came out. And it sleep for seven days after that. Um, you know, I woke up smoking weed, doing cocaine to get through the day. I smoked weed and did Xanax to go to bed just to be able to sleep. And I did this for years. And then I came across um, my now ex-wife, Lisa. And when I kind of met her, everything really kind of calmed down a little bit. And then we did the, what I think is the only reason we met. Um, we had a child together. And it was the greatest thing I have ever done in this world is to help create this beautiful, amazing girl. Um, and we named her Phoenix because um, I'm a little bit of a comic book nerd. And so I like the name Phoenix. So for a little bit, everything was calm. I was somewhat sober. Um, but then the demons came back and just different painful things came back. So me and Lisa split and we divorced and we went our separate ways. Um, she went back to live with her parents and go to school. I went back to Tyler. 
and kind of the Dallas area, which I went straight back into drugs and alcohol. And it ended up causing me to be homeless. And so I ended up living at the Salvation Army for a while. And then kind of had enough. And so there's a store in Tyler that I always loved. It was Harley's. It's a men's clothing store. There used to be one here in College Station. And through that store, God kind of started laying the foundation for me. And I ended up moving to College Station and working with Michael, who introduced me to a lot of different people in this town to just get a relationship. And then, but I got to back up. I kind of went ahead. Um, Because after Lisa and I divorced and I was so much more into drugs than I was before, um, she met somebody else. They started dating. They decided they wanted to get married. Um, But I really wasn't seeing Phoenix because I was too much of a drug head and too drunk to see her most of the time. So they hit me with two options. We can go to court and fight for sole custody of her, or I can sign my rights away. And it was a losing battle for me. All they had to do was drug test me. All they had to do was ask for a resident address for me to keep her in a stable home. I I couldn't pass a drug test to save my life. I didn't have a home. I was couch surfing. Uh, I had a friend, Dan, that just kept me and just picked me up in the darkest places of our town and just drug my carcass to his house and let me just sleep. I mean, I was always that way, you know, and through the years, I had a few OD moments. Um, I also kind of got tired of it and I grabbed a bottle of Xanax, grabbed a bottle of Oxycontin, and I swallowed both the pills, all of them, just done. If it hadn't been my friend finding me, and rushing me to the ER and getting my stomach pumped, I would have died that night. But that's what I wanted. To just be honest with everybody, I didn't want to keep going. So they hit me with those two options. So I knew I was going to lose, and they were right. I wasn't fit to be her dad. Why would you want a kid around somebody that did what I was doing? So I signed my rights away, and then the Salvation Army, then I started working at Harley's. And then once I started working at Harley's, everything really kind of started to slow down. There was no real heavy drugs. I was still smoking weed and drinking heavily a lot. Um, But it all kind of started slowing down until one day when the attorney general sent me and Harley a letter. And uh, in that letter, it said that there was going to be a warrant issued for my arrest for back child support. And I just kind of laughed it off. I was like, I don't have back child support. I'll just call them. So I called them. I said, I signed my rights away. And, you know, there's a mistake in your paperwork. And they said, there's no mistake in our paperwork. That paperwork was never filed. And at that moment was my turnaround point. Um, At that moment, the one regret that I had that I tried to fill with drugs and alcohol to numb the pain never happened so I got a chance to really get my life together and um, it didn't happen right away really didn't but it everything kind of started to slow down and 
And that was it, right? That, that was that, the turning point. That was my turning point. Yeah, yeah. And so what's fascinating is that Josh, when that all was going on, it, it was a, a, a flip, a, a switch of sorts that got flipped, but then another series of events had to take place. You can kind of think of the formula for every action. There's an equal and opposite reaction, right? And so as he thinks, of, as you think about what he poured into getting to this place, well, God began this phenomenal journey of pulling you out of that place. And so if you come back next Sunday, you'll hear the rest of the story, okay? <laughs> Believe me, it gets a lot better. It gets a lot better. Would you help me thank Josh for sharing what he shared to this point? Thank you. Now, I got to tell you, that took a tremendous amount of courage for Josh to share what he shared. We prayed about this for several weeks. Next Sunday, he is going to tell you the rest of the story. And he's also going to have somebody else on stage with him that will help you understand that you don't have to be perfect to start being the hands and feet of Jesus. Josh's life isn't perfect. He still has ups and downs. He still has his difficult days. He's still, like all of us, right, trying to figure this, this thing called life out. And we don't have it perfect. We don't understand it all. But when we start living a life that is consecrated, a life that is set apart for the glory of God, things do begin to happen that reorient our heads and our hearts if we will just trust the Lord and live into it. So a couple of things, and we'll wrap up this morning. Three years ago, I took a trip to China. And one of the things that you can do when you're in China, I did not know that this existed, but one of the things that's over there is um, just market spaces. You just, lots of different places and lots of different cities, they just have these big, giant marketplaces. And so our cohort, I was with the Pepperdine cohort, we were walking through, and, and, and I was fascinated. We went into this place, there's hundreds of dealers. I'm talking probably 300 or more dealers in this one marketplace area. And I'm like, oh, wow, look, there's a Gucci purse. And, oh, hey, there's a Toomey bag. Wow, this place has Rolex watches. What I began to discover was is that all of these things were fake. Everything in every store was a cheap imitation. It was a knockoff. And I want you to imagine if I had bought several of those and brought those back to my family and, and tried to give those to my family uh, as gifts. So I say to my sons at Christmas, hey, guess what, guys? I, I got you some fake Rolexes uh, for Christmas this year. Can you imagine? I mean, how would they receive that? This is something that is supposed to look expensive. And by the way, for most of the products, they didn't. The eye test was really all you needed, right? but something that is inauthentic. Something that may look valuable, but it's not. We, we understand the disconnect, right? Don't we get it? That there's just something about that that's just, I don't know, it doesn't sit right with us. So the first theme of this chapter was this theme of consecration, this idea of setting aside our lives, our children, our possession, our time, our money for the Lord. And this is not a choice that is for the faint of heart. 
When we do this, however, when we become a consecrated people, it allows us to say to those influences around us, those people around us who want to maybe see us with one foot in the kingdom and one foot in the world, it allows us to say to them, no thanks. No thanks to that which Satan makes appear so real, so genuine, so enticing. But it's all fake. All of it will be burned up in the end. We can say no thanks, not in a, not in a self-righteous look down our nose kind of way, but but no thanks with a confidence. I would even call it a, a holy confidence. And that, that comes from the Spirit within us. See, in the time of Nehemiah, the leaders of Judah had lost that confidence. They had lost that, that fire, that passion to say no thanks. And I'm afraid a lot of people in our world, and, and quite frankly, even some folks in our churches, we've forgotten what's sacred and we've just replaced it with a cheap imitation. But here's the amazing news. We do not have to settle. The second theme in chapter 3 is one of repair. If the first is consecration, if the first is setting aside, what are we setting aside? Well, we see this theme here of repair. We see this theme of restore. This word repair is used 34 times in Nehemiah chapter 3 alone. It's a theme that Nehemiah so wants his readers to understand. He wants them to be able to reflect and to celebrate these wins. And God wants the same thing for us too. It's so easy for us to sit around and just say, oh, woe are we, you know, how awful things are, how terrible things are. And I got to tell you, things are tough. But I think as we move forward, it may be time for us as a church to focus more on what God is doing right than what those around us may be doing wrong. I see this other theme in chapter 3. It's this theme of building, and I'm, I'm starting to pick up on something here grammatically that consecrate and repair and build. All of these are action verbs. The community of faith that Nehemiah leads, decides to pitch in together. They have a common goal, even as they're surrounded by a common enemy, and, and yet they labor together. And it's, it's hard to see this when we're just casually reading through the text, but if we dig a little bit deeper, we find something that's pretty amazing. Mark Thronvier points this out in his commentary when he writes, Nehemiah seems to have organized the builders in such a way as far as possible, each would be responsible for the part of the wall that lay opposite his own house. This eliminated arguments as to who would work where and motivated the workers to make that part of the wall that defended them as secure as possible. Do you see what happens when we help each other out? When we step into the brokenness, the pain, the difficulties, the, the walls have come crashing down moments of a brother or a sister or a neighbor or a friend. Surely, when we do this, it can be difficult, but surely we are blessed. I know when I've gone to Ukraine and, 
And even more recently, Cozumel, and, and even yesterday, up in Franklin, I, I, I probably in all of those situations have walked away feeling more blessed than people that I actually was able to serve. But, you know, at least to some degree, God designed it that way. If I'm only thinking about what's best for me, well, that's a proven recipe for disaster again and again and again. But thinking about and doing for others, well, that makes the world a better place. That helps others find hope. It helps people live with purpose. And I don't know about you, but that seems to me to be a lot more fulfilling than just seeing who can die with the most toys. And that brings me to the final theme that strikes me when I read this passage, the emphasis that is placed on the detail work. Now, last Sunday, I mentioned that Nehemiah beautifully models for us the power of making a plan and working the plan. And we mentioned last week that making the plan generally is always easier than working the plan. Put another way, working the plan is usually harder than making a plan. One of the reasons is the detail work. Several years ago, Delene and I bought a bedroom suit off of Craigslist, and we went to the, we went to the storage unit to pick this thing up. We brought it back to the house. We were so excited. We've got this, this beautiful piece of furniture, and we're going to refinish it. It's going to be so much fun. When we get done, it's going to be awesome. So we, we start sanding. This is, this is really fun. And we start sanding a little bit more. Whew, man, this is, this is tough. Then we start painting. Why, why did we get this bedroom suit? Then we start doing the detail work. We didn't need this dumb thing, right? So sometimes we're really in love with the idea of the big, the finished product, the way it's going to look when we get through all of the minutiae, right? When we don't have to sweat the little details anymore. But Nehemiah shows us this powerful lesson here. Detail work is essential if we're going to have long-term success. The workers we read in Nehemiah 3, verses 3 and 6, the workers laid the beams. That's detail work, a perfume maker. Hananiah did his part in chapter 3 and verse 8. We read about the goldsmiths uh, and merchants and many others, kind of regardless of their station in life, they just rolled up their sleeves and they all, they all dove in, even to the detail work. Now, why is this important? Because when the walls of our lives come crumbling down, we need people around us who know what they are doing. People who can help us envision a better future. And people who can help us look for details in our plans if we ultimately want to be in another place. And by the way, that's a huge part of the equation if we ultimately want to be in a different place. So I want to talk a little bit this morning as we wrap up about some detail work. I am convinced, and I just can't say enough about the courage that Josh took to share this morning, but I am convinced that there are 
hundreds and possibly thousands of people that are now where Josh was. And I'm just talking about right here in Bryan College Station. I'm convinced of that. So we have some tools that God has helped us as a church put into our toolbox. And I want to encourage you that if you're keeping secrets and if you're anesthetizing the pain and if you're trying to repair the broken walls in any other way, then by giving it to the Lord and trusting Him and surrounding yourself with people who can help you with the detail work, and I want to turn you on to some resources that I encourage you to consider. And if not for you, then perhaps for folks that you know and want to see ultimately in a different place. So on Monday evening at 6 p.m., there's a group of men that meet at this church. It's called the Samson Society. And we are men who want to walk in purity. So we meet every Monday night at 6 o'clock. Many times we confess our, our sins to one another. Many times we encourage one another. Sometimes we just engage in conversation about a topic of choice. But the purpose is to grow relationally with other men so that we realize we are not alone. Al-Anon meets here every single week. There are two groups, but the one I'm most familiar with meets on Monday nights at 7 o'clock right here in room 110. We call it the glass block room, probably because of the glass blocks, I think. But... But this is a place where people who have family members or dear friends who are really, really wrestling with addiction or alcoholism. And so this is a safe place for you to come get tools in your toolbox. We have Celebrate Recovery. Currently, there are multiple groups meeting in churches and other places, perhaps in Bryan College Station. We have a group that meets here on Thursday nights. They've taken a break for the summer. But this fall, Celebrate Recovery will help you overcome the hurts, the habits, the broken parts of us and usher us into wholeness. Many of you know Susie Guy. Susie specializes in addiction-related counseling and therapy. If you would love a confidential session with her, all you have to do is call the church office. We promise you we will not betray your trust. We'll make sure that you can get connected with her. The A&M Christian Counseling Center specializes in all types of counseling for all types of situations. You just may think to yourself, nobody understands where I am. Nobody would love me if they knew what I did. I want to guarantee you there is nothing you could say at the A&M Christian Counseling Center that they haven't heard or seen before. You're not going to shock them. They're going to come alongside and help, and you can see the website listed there. And perhaps one of the greatest resources that we have in this church, all of those are wonderful, all of those are powerful, all of those are needed, but one of the greatest resources we have is sitting right here in this room. And church, that's just one another. It's just one another. And when we choose to get into the, the messiness of life with each other, that's when God truly begins to do His work. So I think there are folks here who want to do that. The difficult part is for us to want somebody to do that. And so I pray you'll trust the Lord and have the kind of courage that we've seen exhibited here today. And I want you to know even in our culture, there's this loneliness epidemic that's just raging. Well, it doesn't have to be the case here. We're surrounded by people who love us and want to come alongside us when the walls of life come crumbling down.
and help us rebuild and help us restore. As a consecrated people, God will position us to do that. We're going to share a song together. We've gone a little bit over today. Hopefully it's been worth it to be able to spend this time uh, hearing from a precious heart and uh, also from God's word. Uh, If there's anything we can do to bless you during this time, feel free to turn to one another. Feel free to make your way to the back. Our shepherds can meet you there. Let's stand together, church, and let's sing. My shepherd, watching over my soul.